Good morning. This is your host, Hacker Mike, coming at you on my morning walk, where I share with you my intimate thoughts on all different things. Today, we're going to talk about configuration management, Ansible, and other tools. So, in the last couple of episodes, we've discussed the whole idea of dynamic <clears throat> configuration generation or schema generation, or basically the permutation model of configuration. So, to refresh on that, you've got multiple factors that define the skeleton of your configuration, the backbone, the major parts, and they're all permuted against each other like a matrix. Just think of a matrix. Um, but really think about it, the old distance matrix, like this is the distance between two cities, right? And it's really a triangle because it's a matrix folded in half because, uh, you know, every city has a zero distance to itself, and the distance between New York and St. Louis is the same as the distance between St. Louis and New York. So you don't need to store both sides of the equation of the same distance. Now, obviously, the time that you need to travel into the city uh, from New Jersey might be greater than traveling out depending on the time of the day. But we're not talking about temporal relationships during, you know, time of day things. We're just talking about distance. Right? Now in this case, we're just going to say <clears throat> you have a relationship, a combination relationship of different cities to each other or a triangular matrix. Now, obviously, there's some better mathematical terms for this that I don't know necessarily. Um, but I'm being pretty plain. <clears throat> so that's between two different factors. So let's just say you have your environment and you have your department. And each department might have... Um, look at all these deer. Oh, my God. Or each app might have its different environments. Look at these deer. I gotta take a picture of these deer here. Sorry about that, guys. I'll have to share some of these pics on Twitter. So. <clears throat> Basically, you have applications um, and you have like developers working on them. So let's just say you have a local environment or developer environment. Then you have a Q&A uh, environment where the merge changes are merged together. Um, and then um, 
PT environment where things are production tested or pre-production tested, let's say, say this is how it works in my current uh, working space. Yeah. You might have different integration points for different projects. In any case, those are just two different factors that are multiplied against each other. <coughs> but there's even more factors that we have to look at. There's different aspects There's different aspects that are common to all these different environments. Um, there's like the aspect of security. There's the aspect of, let's say, database backups or something. The data layers. So we might have... So I'm walking uphill right now in case you're wondering why I'm breathing a little heavier. I can put my mic up a little bit like that, so maybe not breathing directly into the mic. <clears throat> okay. So you've got um, these different aspects that are common between all three. Let's say, say, setting up a build and check environment for that, or a deployment tool. So different parts, different moving parts that we might want to target. And all of these things consider the different environment or configuration variables for the applications. So you might have a database layer, and you might want to store configuration You might want to store configuration information about the database layer for these different apps or the different, right? So you would tag them in the data layer for that app for that environment. So we've gotten into a cube or three-dimensional matrix now. Okay. So that's the first part. That's the first part of this. Um, it's like a basic structure where you have the um, the different moving parts and how they relate to each other. Okay. So you're asking yourself, what the hell is he talking about? Well, this is kind of what I've gone over in the past episodes. Is like this uh, skeletal structure, and I talked about the uh, the lattice type thing where you have um, different groups going from the base of all all things, and then you've got like all environments, or like the Q&A environment, and all the uh, different groups underneath that, and then you've 
say all the Q&A environments for this department or this app, etc., etc. So we're talking about creating a generator, a combinational generator that generates a structure that matches as close as possible what you have in reality. And once you have that, those factors, then you would basically have a list of values for them. And then I guess eventually you're going to need to say these factors can never coexist. So you might want to say, now we're going to tweak this. We're going to generate all these combinations, but this app has no database. Right? Or this app has this particular database. Right? So you want to start assigning values for different configuration items that you've generated or the different slots and then use those values to key in and do more generation. So instead of So you might want to say, well, this database has these different tables, and for each table, I want to know about the indexes, for example, right? So each different database server will have different lists of tables, and you don't want to iterate over all the tables for all the databases, right? Although they all might have a user database of some kind. So that's where this model breaks, where we don't have permutations or combinations against all of them. We're starting to get into local structures. Okay, and now we haven't covered that at all. So we're going to go from the, um, the type level to the instance level. And then based on the instance level, we're going to introduce new subtypes or specifications or reductions in the um, in the type space subsets so you might have a t um, you might have a uh, a list of all the tables And you might say, well, we have a concept of a user table, we have a concept of a customer table, we have a concept of this, and the particular user table for this database is that. So we might want to create a generator for that. Um, in the skeletal system, we might not. We have to look at that. But basically, so that's the next level. And you might want to say you have indexes. And the indexes will, might be combinations of the fields, or they might not be. So you might say, well, we don't want all of the fields to be indexed in all permutations or combinations, right? So the field names will then be the next layer inside of the table, right? But then again, a lot of the tables might have the last updated date. They might have the 
unique identifier field and all of that. Now, this is where I'm going to make a big jump here and I'm going to talk about Haskell, the programming language Haskell. And um, Haskell has a very powerful type system. And one of the features of this type system is that you can use it to define, to define whole new type systems and all these different rules about them. So one interesting thing about Haskell is that um, there are these things called, I think they're called generic algebraic types or something like that, which are basic data types like you'd use them in simple systems. Like they all have an identifier, kind of like how Django works with objects, where you have a certain predetermined type of object that you're dealing with or concept of how you want to deal with that object. Um, and uh, given these restrictions on basically given a set of restrictions on what the types can be and how complex they can be, like if they're simple, simple types where you would um, just have a set of fields and maybe a reference to another set, you can represent them and generate everything automatically and deal with them in a completely generic nature. Um, and that's what I hope here to introduce is basically a way of describing the types, validating that description, and then um, dealing with the data in a generic form. and to do it quickly. So what I'm hoping to get out of this whole exercise here is a very fast tool for serving all the needs of the dynamic inventory and also the parameterization, the group hierarchy structure and the parameterization that you see in Ansible and to get rid of the whole Ansible. Um. Morning, guys. <laughs> to get rid of the whole uh, slow part of Ansible and replace it with a generic tool that we can use for multiple systems. And I'm thinking something Okay, we have to include the temporal ideas, right? We, we try to exclude temp uh, time, and we have to think about causality and like what causes what, what change we expect, what change that has been re registered by a third-party actor, what change has been recorded as being caused by our intended change. So we have intended changes and unintended changes. Lax and strict controls over those changes. 
a way of collecting new information. So we have basically a driver of some kind, an interface that would collect change information from the existing system <clears throat> and reconcile that reconciliation engine. So I'm thinking about what I learned from BMC. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. The ITSM system, which is also a configuration management database, uh, CMDB. The re reconciliation engine, which was horribly, uh, Sounds like my phone is not locked. Not locked. The reconciliation engine, which will reconcile changes. So we're going to have to actually study this as a topic and do a broader survey and do some reading on, you know, what do we expect from a configuration management database, right? What are the aspects and parts to it, right? And we're starting with that, with a, a broad skeleton of things. So we're talking about moving parts. We're talking about moving parts. We're talking about uh, a generator of sorts that would um, generate combinations of permutations, and that can be done with SQL or other query languages. So I was kind of trying to think about some implementations. Um, and how we could implement these things with queries in SQL or other uh, tools. Um, I don't want to go totally crazy about the uh, the implementation at this point. I'm more worried about the um, parts, the moving parts myself. and um, how we can specify them. So I kind of like the idea of the web ontology language as a, uh, a generic knowledge tool. And it gives you all types of logical, um, it gives you all types of logical constructs to use. It introduces the types of domains and ranges and types and instances so I think that we can actually use that for our configuration management system as a metadata or as a descriptor um, it's pretty powerful that can also express disjoint you know this concept is disjoint with or this concept and then we can introduce something like this concept is combined with this concept in this environment kind of thing. So 
I think we'll start with the idea like we have an environment, a context in which we're working. <clears throat> Basically our mandate or our you know our context that we're working in. Like just a general um, place to work in. And then in that place, we are going to introduce different key types that are combined with each other. And these types have um, examples or set lists of instances. And uh, those instances can be tagged as never occurring with another or occurring with another so you could say this instance excludes this instance also between different types so you could say you know this uh, application has no database or this application uses this shared database And then we can get into things like this database has these tables this table has these fields this table has these indexes so also facts that we're collecting This table is partitioned by these uh, items. So we're going to get into all different types of information about the details of what what it is. And this is basically getting into the introspector type system. And some of it can be collected using introspector. So we have different drivers for collecting facts of our application. Yeah, log files. Of various types that we're going to parse out. You know, a log file is just a stream of events originating from some collector or some observation system, and they're going to be either logs that are generated by programs or intercept points that are injected into programs and uh, that kind of gets into the point of well hey we can also intercept points as the print statement so when you see a print statement sure you can collect what's being printed but you can also collect all types of metadata at that print point right that's one of my key insights like if you had a breakpoint on every print statement and you're able to collect extra information, you could do that with kernel level stuff like the um,
perf system in Linux setting or D-trace, you know, setting dynamic breakpoints kind of thing. So yeah, and then we're going to get into, well, this system has these functions. This system has these versions. This version has these functions. These functions are at this address in memory. They're at this address in the code. So we're getting into this massive database, actually, of information. And it is hierarchical. There's a hierarchy of the database. It doesn't need to be totally centralized. It doesn't all need to be stored in some Postgres system. And it also could be stored um, on disk. It's the ELF format. Uh, for example, it already has the data. So why do we need to make another copy of it? Um, can't we just load the binary directly or extract the headers? So uh, let's just imagine that we have some Kubernetes type system. And we kind of talked about this, but let's just imagine this. We have some kind of Kubernetes type system that could uh, load in a container or a, an image in Docker. Um, and then it could create a container, could create a process. You could instrument that process using Creu or some other intercept system. And then, um, well, maybe we could shrink down the image size. So let's just imagine that we have this binary that we've loaded, but we don't need to store the entire, let's just say that binary loads a gigaton of data. Do we really need to store that entire gigaton of data or is it okay that we store it on disk and we know how to load it? So instead of loading that particular piece of data, we could intercept the loading of it and turn it into a lazy load like Haskell and say, hey, this data is available to us. We're going to load it when we need it. Okay. So we could turn things around and wrap the Haskell lazy loading system onto this entire humongous database or virtual database. Um, and even go into saying perf information, like the ability to collect any data from any data point at any time, we just lazy load that. And um, just declare that we have all this data available to us. Let's say in a language like Haskell, um, that's lazy, and it'll only actually generate the instructions for capturing that data when we need it. Okay. I kind of like the sound of that. So then we're going to shift everything into the type space. Right. And, um, not everything, but we're going to shift a lot of it into the type space and then go into now this gets into the chicken and the egg problem of well how do you iterate over the names of something that's lazily loaded where you have to execute the thing to get the names so you can choose between them 
right? And we have to generate some type of Haskell code for some. So this is where I have to do some research into how we're going to handle that. Are we going to generate code in Haskell for these identifiers and have this type pollution or name pollution? Or we're going to generate, we're going to create some kind of user interface. But sometimes people are going to want to populate some kind of database. So I think that there's different uh, needs here. Good morning. So basically, I think some people are going to want to have the Excel sheet, right? Or whatever, a database table. So they're going to want to. They're going to want to, on the back end, export this out or sync it into some kind of data format that's usable or have it in some notebook or have generate some documentation from it or create a query and say, okay, this is a list of all the types that we have at that level. And then like insert a query there and have it dynamically generated. But they also want, want to have a heading, a chapter heading and say, this we have one chapter for type and they actually want to have those chapters um, explicitly created. But when a new chapter shows up, a new type shows up later on a new version, they want to have that um, throw a compile error and say, hey, your documentation is out of date. Um, so <clears throat> I think we're going to uh, do some research on, on this particular topic and leave it open to either some kind of compiler plugin, right? Because Haskell does give you the ability to do all types of plugins. Where um, we're going to generate or dynamically load type data in from different sources as needed. Or we just have some driver in the introspector system to emit the, the type file on the fly. Like when we, when we open this file, when we want to open that file, then it will uh, spit it out. Or it's just as a pre-processing system. Like we notice that these this file is dependent upon this information. This information is out of date. Um, we target that as a necessary change and the pieces that are dependent upon that change will get um, refreshed or reloaded or regenerated. And uh, also, you know, it might not, it might be that the version is the same as the previous version, which is adding in new information. So maybe we can just do an incremental change. So I think we're going to have to have some kind of change dependency, change minimization, you know, algorithms here that are generic for this system. And they're going to have to be fast and efficient.
So we're thinking of introspection as configuration and change management. Meaning extracting the configuration, extracting information about the real system, maintaining some model, finding discrepancies between that model and what's out there, and then either taking action to correct and then uh, monitoring the results of those actions or um, allowing for manual correction and then consuming the results of that manual work and checking it All right. like we found a bug they did some patch check that that bug is actually fixed I think this is a um, pretty good overview again. I mean, this obviously is going to need more work. And um, I want to thank you for joining me in my walk and going over these ideas. Um, I recognize the Introspector as my long-term project, one of my three major projects. And now I'm tying this in with... Um, work I've been doing and this also goes into work that I've been doing at different jobs um, <clears throat> and really it's giving kind of a framework um, for tying everything together and we talked about like the meaning of life and all that and what we haven't talked about is um, what I see as important is the um, it's the it's the conflict uh, resolution part. So if everything is an eternal conflict between memes, right, and genes or whatever, let's just say self-replicating systems. And these self-replicating systems are in conflict with each other in terms of fighting for resources. How do we measure them? Well, one of the measurements would be ability to adapt to a given situation. Ability to deal with change. Response time to events. Like, how well can it respond to an adverse event or a change in the system? Let's say an uncontrolled change or controlled change, an intended or unintended change. And those are going to be key metrics that we want to look at. So maybe we should first start with a system of observation. The inspection part, introspect, looking inside, 
Um, but the introspection is really part of a process because observations on their own are now useful because the stream of observation is fed to the human intelligence or the decision-making process, the OODO loop. They observe, orient, decide, and act, the OODA. In a conflict, and um, according to Jocko's training, we want to have a decisive victory. And we want to seek a decisive victory to decide the matter of which one is going to survive. <clears throat> Yeah, I gotta think about work right now. So anyway, I think um, I think this is the starting point for discussion, and we've given some now conflict-driven model of the meaning of life, so to say. A um, the meaning of life is internal conflict. So that's also an oversimplification. But it's kind of one model that you can use, a simplified model. Um, because what if you're dealing with an insurgency, a uh, guerrilla fighting. What if they do not want to have a conflict, a direct one? So yeah, I guess this all goes into tactics, tactics and strategies and all that. Um, <clears throat> But it's all, looking at it, everything from that uh, perspective is also just one mindset. And, um, and again, I guess we're going to talk about meta, where looking at things from different mindsets, like the philosopher's mindset, the battlefield, the general, whatever, those are just memes or viewpoints, simplifications that people search for to make things simple when reality is more complicated. And um, we're not going to reach an absolute truth on this. So we're going to have to keep these balls in the air and juggle them a little bit and see what's happening. <clears throat> All right, then. This is uh, morning. This is your uh, host, Hacker Mike signing out. Time to get to work.
It's a Monday. We got stuff to do. Peace out.